since 1964 have Melbourne ended the season minor premiers. One kick. And Melbourne are minor premiers. Just like that. I'm pretty emotional right now, to be honest. Um, yeah, 57 years and uh, something the club's been building for a long time. And um, that's for every fan right there, Melbourne fan who's been, you know, um, embarrassed to sort of wear the Melbourne Footy Club logo and, um, you know, to put the club back on the map and to be first is um, something that we've strived for for a long time and um, to be a part of this is just, um, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable to be honest, yeah. Welcome once again to At The G. I'm your host, Anthony Hudson, and this is an episode for the thousands of success-starved MCC members who have followed their beloved demons through thick and a heck of a lot of thin. Of course, they're excited about the prospect of winning a premiership for the first time since 1964. But are also coming to terms with the bittersweet knowledge that they won't be able to witness it firsthand at the MCG. We'll get a sense of the joys and heartbreak of supporting the D's through the barren years that followed the incredible success of the 1950s and 60s when Melbourne won an amazing six flags in 10 years. To tell the bulk of the story, four Demon fans. The doyen of football journalism, Mike Sheehan. Everyone gravitated to it. I couldn't believe that the transistor could carry as far as it did. I reckon there were a thousand people listening to it and Dunstall takes a mark in the dying moments of that game and kicks a goal and Hawthorne beats you along by three points and Melbourne's in the finals for the first time since 64. Melbourne Football Club historian and author Linda Carroll. The earliest image was seeing Rob Flower flying across the ground and just that it's like he was not touching the turf if you like. He was a magic figure and he, he remained that way right right through my lifetime. Veteran radio broadcaster and writer John Rothfield, a.k.a. Dr Turf. That great line in English soccer, uh, it's the hope that kills you. It's been a difficult 60 years of supporting them. And Adam Woolcock, who has just released a book on the Demons' 1964 premiership entitled The Last Hurrah. And it's said that he never actually congratulated Crompton about kicking that goal and always seemed to hold something of a grudge against him for going against the system. It wasn't a case of, oh, well, at least we won. Uh, he still thought, what were you doing there, even though it had won them a grand final. We'll also hear from current Brisbane coach and former Demons assistant Chris Fagan and ex-Melbourne players David Neitz and Jordan Lewis. Yeah, that moment of running out of the ground, you're not really touching the ground. You're, you're walking on air and cheering the boys up, breaking through the banner. 
was a great moment and uh, the rest of the day we'll rather forget about. <laughs> I've never gone back and watched it. All my mates tell me how bad I was and they could sense how bad I was from the opening five minutes. So it's one of those games I was lucky enough to have success prior to that. So it's one of those games where I just block completely out of my mind. Mike Sheehan, how did you become a demon? Well, Ant, I was uh, born into a Melbourne family in Werribee. My parents were both passionate Melbourne supporters. But I must say, this is sort of confessional time. I was a wayward child in footy terms. I had a flirtation with Geelong, which you relate to, when I was really young. And then a guy from around the corner who was sort of almost one of our adopted brothers, a bloke called Bernie Lee, started playing with Footscray. And I, this is for, I think, eight or nine years and played in the 61 grand final. So for that period, I was so obsessive about him that I just sort of adopted him and Footscray. But uh, like all strong relationships, hello, I came back to the fold. And I think probably, I mean, I've been painted as this, my beloved demons and this passionate Melbourne supporter, which is now true, but it probably didn't blossom until... I worked at the AFL in the late 80s because then I was free of A, playing football and B, working on football. It was an incredible period of success, so it's hard to imagine why you would have thought about wandering to other clubs. Because I was so mad about football, having a league footballer around the corner who used to work in our shop, I mean, it was just sort of like, it was like, it was supernatural. <laughs> and, and he was a very obliging bloke. I mean, I drove him mad with the attention I gave him, but... Um, he would take me to the footy almost every Saturday. Played 90-odd games, and I reckon I would have gone to the footy with him about 80 times. Carried his bag. In fact, on grand final day 61, uh, Bernie, Bernie Lee and Bob Spargo, who were both playing for Footscray that day, carried me up to my seat uh, in, the, in the grandstand because I'd broken my leg playing football two weeks earlier. So, you know, I was as big a hero as they were. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you then in 61? 14. So I'd, I'd broken my leg at training. And again, I mean, just can you imagine it today? Two blokes playing in the grand final, carting a kid up to his seat and then <laughs> heading off to the rooms. But that was, you know, that's so I think I'm, I, I, I don't feel all that defensive about actually wandering away from Melbourne for that period of time because the lure was so strong. Can you give us a sense of what footy was like and particularly you know, around Melbourne and the MCG and the MCC and uh, just your yeah. overall feelings from that time? It was different, but it was huge. And it was probably, in a sense, even bigger than it is today because of the passion that everyone, almost every person who could speak English had a football team. And, and I mean, I, I, I wasn't a great student at school, but I, I taught myself, certainly English, out of reading the paper every day. We used to get the sun at, at home every day and I would read every football story. So I was sort of almost a, a citizen of the football world. I read everything. I knew numbers, I knew people and how many games they'd played and all that. So that was just a passion of mine that's actually never abated. Turfy, how did it all start for you? To be brutally honest, Hutto, my sister Barrack for Collingwood, uh, they won the 58 grand final and as, you know, young kids, young boys hate their sisters, that was just standard behaviour, <laughs> I barracked for Melbourne because they beat Melbourne in the 58 grand final and uh, whilst I grew to sort of have some affection for my sister, uh, I never had any for Collingwood ever. Uh, very good. And what's your earliest memory then of going to the footy? 
I, I think probably as six, seven, eight-year-old, my best mate uh, at school, I, I went to the footy to every Melbourne home game with him. We had a couple of ladies' tickets. Uh, this is in the days, of course, when there were no uh, women members of, of the MCC, let alone any, any race club. That didn't change till uh, John Kane stopped all of that. But um, So we went to the footy with ladies' tickets, which were uh, every member had a ladies' ticket for his wife. Uh, and we would stand or sit in the Ross Graysmith stand in the Ford Pocket, an old wooden stand. Occasionally, we'd venture down to the uh, the front row. And I, I used to love sitting behind Norm Smith, uh, the coach, on the, you know, sat on a piece of pine on the bench there uh, wearing his garbadine raincoat. And so my earliest memories were from very, very early on in the 1960s, I suppose. I just loved him. Uh, and uh, the love affair continues to this day. What else can you remember about attending those games at the MCG then? I don't know. You know, I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but in the days where uh, supporters would hang banners uh, either over the boundary line fence or even up on the first deck, and I'll never forget in the forward pocket of what's now the Great Southern Stand, on the first level there, there was always a long banner that said, Never Say Die Demons. And for some reason, that sort of st- has stuck in my mind for uh, well, 50-odd years. That was there every, every home game for decades, that banner. Linda Carroll wrote the club's history a grand old flag in 1999 before working for the club between 2005 and 2013 as an historian and publisher and then returning to an honorary role in communications with the past players. She also works in the MCC library on match days. For Linda, the Demons have been a happy, lifelong obsession. I was born that way. My dad basically gave the same edict to myself and my two younger siblings. You can follow who you like. If you want to eat, you've got to follow Melbourne. <laughs> this was during the late 1970s or mid-1970s through to the early 1980s, so we must have been really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> because Melbourne was not exactly on fire. You'd say you're a Melbourne supporter at primary school and you're at, at uh, risk of being, being beaten up. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and the only other person at, at primary school who fired the demons was by the time I was in grade six was my younger sister. So <laughs> it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a test of fortitude, that's for sure, in amongst a whole, yeah, whole heap of Richmond and Collingwood supporters. And Adam, what set you on the path? Yeah, well, I had the unlucky uh, history to grow up in Hawthorne in the 80s uh, and being quite a contrary kid, uh, I decided that I didn't want to go for the team everyone else went for. Uh, So come 1988, the first year I got into footy, I said I will go for whoever Hawthorne plays in the grand final this year, correctly assuming that the great Hawthorne side would make the grand final that year. Uh, And and that obviously ended up being Melbourne. Uh, They were very lucky. They only won that elimination final against West Coast, courtesy of a shot that missed in the last seconds by the Eagles and then they got through to the grand final where they then proceeded to lose by the record margin of 96 points and somehow that didn't turn me off and I, I still got into it and the, not the first game I went to but the first game I went to at the MCG they lost by I think 120 points uh, and John Longmire kicked 14 goals and that <laughs> didn't turn me off either uh, and then it, it just became became an obsession uh, mainly 1991 Alan Jakovic that was the that was the period that really tied me in forever. Um, and, and, you know, like so many Melbourne fans now who grew up in that era, I look back to that. He played 47 games and, and it just seems like it was the greatest 47 games of all when it was probably about 30 great games and about 15 others. And that really tied me into the club forever.
Mike, you did witness the end to the glory years, didn't you? I did. I went to the 58 grand final and I went to the 64 grand final with a mate of mine who was a Collingwood supporter. We sat up on top of the Northern Stand. Um, that was a great memory. But I mean, for kids of my age at that time, it was almost the norm. You know, it was the sixth one in 10 years. And I think my enduring memory from that is feeling so sorry for my mate who happened to bag for Collingwood. But um, when you're thinking it's six in 10 years, you just presume that something good's going to happen when the footy season starts. And, and I was lucky enough, had a, a friend of my parents was David Mandy, who was the number one ticket holder at Richmond, and he, and he got me a ticket to the 1964 Grand Final. So I was lucky enough to go to that as a 10-year-old. I, I mean, I remember getting on the train and walking to the G and then going to the game and then leaving on my own as a 10-year-old. You imagine parents yeah. these days letting 10-year-old kids go to the footy by train and sit on their own all day. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the ball bouncing off the pack and uh, Neil Crompton, number five, I reckon, I think it was a torpedo. He was our back pocket player. He'd followed his forward pocket down and kicked the winning goal. Um, and I just, you know, I was lucky enough to be, you know, one of those fans that was there as a kid to uh, to see the last flag back in uh, 1964, the year the Beatles came to Australia. It was a great year. 64, my memory is that it wasn't a great team. And I think that was proven to be correct because of the slide that happened after that. The two biggest names in Melbourne Football Club history are legendary coach Norm Smith and Ronald Dale Barassi. Barassi played in all six of the Demons premierships in the 50s and 60s and captained the last two before leaving in 1965 to embark on his own coaching career at Carlton. While Barassi would eventually return as coach in the 80s, tensions between Smith and the board led to his sacking during 1965. After a public outcry, he was reinstated, but departed after the 1967 season. The Smith sacking and Melbourne's subsequent fall from grace led to suggestions of the curse of Norm Smith. Adam, what did you learn about the great Norm Smith? Yeah, well, I'm very lucky to have the, one of the best source materials of all time, the books The Red Fox by Ben Collins. Uh, and you, you do get a feeling of just a man who has just an intense um, loyalty to, to his players, an intense loyalty to the club and an intense loyalty to his own system of playing football. Uh, not absolutely everybody talks about him like he was a friend to them. Uh, there, there, is, there were some players, and it's written in the book, who actually said they felt that he treated them quite shabbily. Um, but there's others who say he was like a father figure to them. The, the intensity and the, the commitment, uh, I'm not sure it would translate to a modern era. Like you look at a, a coach like you know, Alistair Clarkson, who in his past has you know, smashed phones and punched walls in the boxes of the, the coaching box. But Smith was a different kind of intensity, uh, even when the night of the 64 Premiership, when his side had just won this flag uh, and the doorman wouldn't let uh, a young player who they were trying to recruit into the dinner, even though he'd been invited as a guest, he didn't have a ticket. And uh, Norm Smith got into an argument with his doorman and ended up slamming a door that broke the doorman's hand. That was the intensity he bought that that he wanted. On the night his team had just won like a, an improbable premiership, uh, he was so fired up about that next generation and making the club look good to the next generation of players um, that he wasn't going to take, take no for an answer. Uh, and that's something that comes through a lot. He's just somebody who's who's just had this amazing dedication to his system and his way of playing football. So Neil Crompton, um, we know that he kicked the, the winning goal in the grand final. 
the where he was on the ground was completely against the orders he'd been given by Norm Smith. And, and Smith actually tried to send out a trainer to stop him from going forward when he did. And it's said that he never actually congratulated Crompton about kicking that goal and always seemed to hold something of a grudge against him for going against the system. That's how like, just amazingly... Uh, you know, dedicated to his system that Smith was. It wasn't a case of, oh, well, at least we won. Uh, he still thought, what were you doing there, even though it had won them a grand final. So, Adam, having studied the era so closely, why did the decline happen, do you think, and why was it so pronounced? Well, they'd already reached a point where a lot of the great players were starting to come to the ends of their career. Uh, of After 64, you lose Barassi, you lose Frank Adams, and not long after that, you, you start to lose a lot of those other classic players, Brian Dixon, John Lord, Brian Keneally. All those players start to, to end their career, and the changes in recruiting really hurt Melbourne. The country zones came in a couple of years later, and, and what that was, effectively, all the teams just went to VFL House and randomly picked where their zone was going to be. And famously, I think Carlton picked a ripper of a zone. They got a lot of great players out of there, whereas Melbourne, their zone was uh, around the Goulburn Valley, Shepparton area, and it really didn't pay dividends until the till the early 80s. Uh, the, the number of players they got from there was not spectacular. They probably, the best players from Melbourne of the 70s and, and early 80s were metropolitan zone players rather than country zone players. So I think that had a really big, really big effect on them because before that you had the ability to go anywhere in the state and sign anyone you wanted to in the country. Um, so they had Jim Cardwell and Ken Carlin who were master recruiters and had helped rebuild the Melbourne side on the run pretty much every year from 1956 onwards and won four more premierships after 1956, which was where probably the peak team that they had, but they kept plugging people in and, and going again. But when those recruiting and rule changes came in, there was no more opportunity to bring a player to the MCG and say, would you like to play here every second week? And there was no more opportunity to, to convince them by giving them jobs and you know, the connections they could make, giving them an MCC membership because you just couldn't do that anymore uh, because someone else was always going to have first right to them. Uh, and then again, also when Richmond moved into the MCG from 1965, there goes the opportunity to tell a young player, this is the only club you can join if you want to play at this ground every week because there was another club playing at that ground every week. The 1970s were a nightmare for Melbourne supporters. You know, they had coaches, you know, Bob Skilton, Dennis Jones, Carl Dittrich. It was a horror period. I mean, I remember going to, to Waverley. I don't remember what year it was. That was the year that um, Fitzroy, I think, kicked the record. Yeah. It was 36-22. You know, it was 14 goals to two at half time, and then things got ugly. <laughs> this is the time of a teams of 20 players, 18 plus two. I think 14 Fitzroy players kicked goals that day. Uh, it was a bleak, bleak time. I remember actually uh, I aff- applied in writing for the coaching job after De- that Dennis Jones got. <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't even get a response. No. I, I, I guess my career of being in the under-16Cs at school wasn't the sort of uh, career they were looking for. 1976, where they almost made the finals. All they needed was uh, Carlton to beat Footscray over at Princess Park uh, on the same day they were condemning Collingwood to their first ever wooden spoon. Uh, and somehow Footscray found a way to draw with Carlton and that put Melbourne out of the, the finals. And then it was, unfortunately, like it is so many times with Melbourne, that season was a, a one-off and they were heading back towards the bottom of the ladder after that. And Adam, the return of the great Ron Barassi to coach in 1981, he was hailed as the great hope and, of course, unveiled his infamous five-year plan, but it didn't quite turn out. 
it was just a difficult era. I think people got swept up in the prodigal son aspect of him coming back and thinking that this is it. We're going to go straight back into the finals here. And of course, 1981, uh, the season Barassi returns, they win one game by one point uh, in about round four and then lose every other game for the season. And I mean, I think we all shared that view. Well, he'll fix it up. You know, he's the, he's the Messiah and it's all going to be good. And then um, the, they recruited Peter Moore and Calvin Templeton, who were both captains of their teams and both Brownlow medalists. And you sort of say, well, Barassi's there and we've got these two champion footballers from other clubs. It's just going to be a matter of course, but it never turned out that way. I mean, eighth was the best finish that Ron had in five years. I think history's probably not as kind to him as it should be. I think in the latter years, Ron laid the foundations for uh, John Northey's team. And Swooper Northey did a pretty good job, really, didn't he? John Northey is Melbourne's most successful coach since Norm Smith. I mean, he had five top four finishes in a row and a 54% win rate. So I think Northey probably doesn't get the credit he deserves, but he followed Ron and, you know, there was a grand final in there that ended badly. A reasonable run. I mean, I think five top four finishes in a row is pretty good, but it's sort of lost when you look at Melbourne in total, you sort of say it's just been a terrible 50 years. So up until that period, Mike, you'd never really been able to show your Melbourne colours, had you? My first love was the story. And, and Caroline Wilson says the same thing. I think we both barracked for the story. So when I was a journo, the number one priority for me was getting the story. And occasionally it came at Melbourne's expense. And I learned to live with the fact that they were in lean times. I mean, they've had, a, well, we know they've had a 50-year lean period. So I was covering the game and keen for Melbourne to do well. But it certainly wasn't the obsession that it's become now and that it is for most kids. And why did you go to the AFL? I was working at the Afternoon Herald in 1986 and decided that I wanted to change of pace. I mean, that, that was like working on morning TV. That was just getting up at 6.30 every morning and then having a deadline that you had to meet by about 9 o'clock. It was pretty torrid. So I'd had enough of that. Um, I went to the AFL when Jack Hamilton was in charge, and that was 1987. So I was at the AFL from 87 to 89 when the Sunday Age started. But that period allowed me, because my best mate at the time was fanatical Melbourne, that period allowed me to sort of just regenerate my interest in the footy club. And I was genuinely, you know, I we used to go most weeks and I was really into it. So I was really pleased. I remember thinking how lucky I was to be able to be like everyone else and have a team and announce it and, and, and live it. And I'd never been able to do that before. The last round of 1987 was obviously a highlight, Mike, as the D's tried to make it back to the finals after so long. Well, my memory's not all that good these days, Hutto, but I vividly remember this. I was standing in the outer at the Western Oval, as it was then, Melbourne and Footscray. It was an incredible round. And people have said the recent last round of 2021 matched it. Well, I doubt that. I mean, you had to live through 87 to know the permutations and, and the drama that, that evolved that day with, with all the games being played on the same day. So Melbourne are playing Footscray. They're a goal down at half time, a goal down at three-quarter time. The great Robert Flower hadn't touched the ball in the first half. But in the finish, we, we, by 15 points in front of 30,000 people at the Witten Oval, uh, and Tulip kicks three in the second half. And I had a transistor radio standing with a mate of mine on the wing. And because of the importance of what was happening down the road at Geelong, the gra everyone gravitated to I couldn't believe that the transistor could carry as far as it did. <laughs> I reckon there were 1,000 people listening to it. And Dunstall takes a mark in the dying moments of that game and kicks a goal. And Hawthorne beat Geelong by three points. 
and Melbourne's in the finals for the first time since 64. That's an indelible memory. I mean, I, to my two fondest memories of, of Melbourne in the last 50 years would be the 87 final round. And because it's recent, uh, the last game at Geelong in, in 2021 when Maxi Gorn kicked the winning goal after the siren. The dramatic story of Melbourne's 1987 campaign didn't end in making the finals. In fact, the conclusion to the preliminary final against Hawthorne is still difficult to comprehend. After being on a roll through the finals, the Demons blew multiple chances to seal the game, but were still in front by three points with 10 seconds remaining, with the ball at fullback for Hawthorne and Irishman Jim Steins about to accidentally make a name for himself in his adopted country. The long kick taken by Swell plays on. Langford comes out with the ball, drives it down. Buccanoa trip. Buccanoa's free kick. Siren sounds. There's the siren, and he's got a kick from 55 metres out. I don't think they've been. 15 metres. As I said, I was with this mate of mine, the Melbourne supporter, the two of us, and we were struck dumb. We just couldn't believe what had unfolded when the 15-metre the penalty was applied and Bucky kicked the goal and it was all over. And after a period, I don't know how long it was, but I turned around to speak to him and he'd gone. <laughs> and I thought, what, what is going on here? This, however many thousands of people there were there, and I'm in his car and he's left. Because, <laughs> like, I thought, and I thought he'd gone to the the grandstand to jump off the roof because he was fanatical. Losing it like we did, the number of chances we had to win it, and the fact that everyone's hero in Robbie Flower had his collarbone broken when that big log dipper jumped all over him and broke his collarbone, uh, and and Tulip wouldn't have played in the grand final anyway. I think, look, I think retrospectively we wouldn't have coped with the grand final with Flower out and other injuries and. In a way, I think we would have got toweled up. But just having a grand final within our grasp, then having it ripped off you. Yeah, and that photo of, of Swooper looking at Jimmy is uh, yeah. one of the best ever, isn't it? It is. Swooper was fierce. He was as fierce as Barassi. Barassi's famous for those the way he used to sort of thunder at blokes and, and yell at them. Swooper was no less involved in that capacity. And his style of coaching was summed up by that photo when he pointed at Jimmy and I felt so sorry for Jimmy. All six foot five of him, and he just had nowhere to hide. I think the sadness of, of 87 was that it was the end for Flower. It was the last game he played. I mean, everyone, everyone, and probably everyone in the competition, whoever you followed, loved Robert Flower. And it was just a sad way for him to finish. But that period was, that was the, the, the period in which Northy sort of had them at a fever pitch. I mean, they were, they were fierce uh, competitors. And it wasn't a great team. It was a team that I, you can't perform above yourself, but they played to their optimum almost every week. Tell us a bit more about, about Robert Flower, though, then for the younger, the younger listeners and, and your relationship with him, because it was a close one as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, he, he was my favourite of all the players that I met and became friendly with to varying degrees in football. He was my favourite. 
Um, and I remember interviewing him on open mic and talking to him about when he started. He started at 72 kilos. I mean, that's he can nearly ride at Flemington at that weight. And, and, and that period of time, if you're a good player like he was, they went after you, the opposition teams, when it was much, much rougher than, uh, than what we have these days. Uh, but his footwork was so brilliant, his vision, uh, and he never complained. He was just, look, he was just the consummate professional on the football field and a genuinely humble black off it. The earliest image was seeing Rob Flower flying across the ground and just that it's like he was not touching the turf, if you like. He just could just spin out of any trouble. He was a magic figure and he, he remained that way right right through my lifetime. He was always someone quite close to in my time at Melbourne as well. You know, I, I remember I wrote his obituary when he um, when he died suddenly and sadly and just the intro was that I love Robert Flower and I wouldn't say that too often. So <laughs> I got to be friendly with him because we were both friends of Bernie Quinlan. So I saw a lot of him, played golf with him, played a lot of tennis with him. I'll tell you what he used to do, Hutto. We had a a Tuesday night tennis competition in Burwood, right? just a local uh, tennis comp. And Tulip played, I got him to play in my team. And he came the first Tuesday, knocked on the door, I went to answer it, and there's Tulip with a plate of sandwiches, right? <laughs> this football hero with a plate of sandwiches for all the, 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 the blokes to, to enjoy during the night. And then we play, we play our first match. Uh, and he would have carried me to victory that night. And who's the first bloke to grab the bag and do the court? Tulip. And I'm like, just this thing about him, it was, it was no pretense. It was just him. He was just a, a kid from Murrumbina who loved his footy, played it brilliantly, but his humility was, uh, was genuine and it was rich. Former Tiger strongman Neil Baum would take over the coaching reins at the start of 1993 in an environment where many of the Melbourne-based clubs were under pressure to survive in the National League. The cash-starved demons went right to the brink off the field, but under Baum they managed a preliminary final appearance in his second year. That period was amazing, and only someone of Baum's temperament could have survived that, I reckon. Uh, it was just, you know, he was just... Such a contrast, Barmy, from on the ground at Richmond to uh, to the coaches' boxes, uh, and I, and they loved him at Melbourne. I mean, I know Gary Lyon and players that, that, that went through with him. They just loved Barmy and what he did for them, and and uh, and how he turned them into a good team. He just couldn't quite get the ultimate, like no one's been able to do. Um, but I think it was his ability to cope with the the machinations off the ground involving. Um, Joe and the power plays there was unbelievable. You had to live through that to understand how deep it was. Um, Melbourne were playing St Kilda and I wrote a story in the, in the paper that day in the Herald Sun saying that um, the loser of today's game, as in, ter- in terms of coaching, uh, would get the flick. And, <laughs> and both, both Barmy and Stan Elves were bloody aghast at that. Uh, Barmy's forgive me, I'm not sure Stan has. And this is the Barmy version. Melbourne St Kilda won and, and Joe sacked him that day. He sacked him at half time, basically, didn't he? Because he went on Triple that's M right. radio at that's half right. time. Yeah, that's it. So, so he said that. He said the story in the paper that morning said the losing coach would go and then Joe delivered the coup de grace at, at half time on the radio. So I'm glad we got through that. Uh, but, geez, it was a torrid time. I mean, just with, with Joe and then with... Uh, the proposed merger and all those other things that were happening and the fact that Melbourne had no money and they couldn't get the right people to run the footy club. Uh, so 
that was the the, the birth of the uh, the curse of Norm Smith. I mean, people just thought this this club is fated to never be any good again. The proposed merger with Hawthorne tore both clubs apart, with Joe Goodnick leading the anti-merger campaign at the Demons. The vote got through at Melbourne, but was scuppered by the no vote at the Hawks. Mike Sheehan was watching the drama live on Channel 7's cable station while preparing for an appearance on Talking Footy. I mean, just with the way the emotions were uh, boiled over and, and, uh, and men that I knew who loved their footy clubs were talking about the clubs going out of existence and even sort of them being part of it. That was a really traumatic time. Yeah, it was horrible. I mean, KB, uh, you know, used to rib me about this all the time that I was you know, trying to dismantle the club. And, you know, you know, my brother was on the board and I voted for the merger and was ecstatic that it failed. Um, I mean, they were trading insolvent and, and I regret to this day not being stronger. I, I don't know what it was. I just, I knew how dire the club's circumstance was. And yeah, Joe Goodnick was the saviour at the time and uh, turned out to be a nightmare president uh, amongst a string of nightmare presidents. But it was, it was yeah, it, it was survival. I mean, we've all heard about the, you know, the save our skins with the Tigers and the, the Western Bullocks. Melbourne, I mean, it was as bleak as, as all of that. And uh, I'll never forget that merger meeting with Ian Ridley, who was a great bloke and a great president standing in front of the throng, I think it might have been Dallas Brooks Hall, saying, be sure this is what you want. Just be sure. And, you know, I, I voted for it and regretted voting for it, but I did. I got away in that. So, um, and I was thrilled that Don Scott did what he did. Um, it, it was a terrible time. Well, 91 was kind of the, the peak, unfortunately. There was 94, they, they bounced back into the finals and made a prelim, but that was the only other final series we made between 91 and 98. And obviously there was the, the trauma of the merger um, campaign, which you know, I, I had no interest at all in following that team. I remember at the time I said, if they merge, I will go and follow Fremantle because it seemed like the most anti-VFL Victorian thing you could possibly do to go and follow a, a team on the other side of the country just out of spite because I didn't want that merger to happen. Linda, I guess you were riding the roller coaster, but looking for things to keep you going. Seeing them get into finals seeing some great careers take off, even during the difficult times. I mean, during 1997, for instance, when we only won four matches in rounds 1, 10, 15 and 22. It was the first year I worked on the yearbook, so I know that. Um, <laughs> uh, seeing Shane Wawoden make his senior debut in round 1, you would never pick that given the year we had, but there was a great career about to start off. So that was pretty special. And just the whole thing of going to the games and the fact that it was it was something you shared with your family such a common interest across different people. I've always found that really a positive thing. But as you say, a lot of heartbreak along the way. A positive turn for Melbourne fans came much quicker than expected, with Neil Danaher becoming the new coach and immediately putting his discipline stamp on the club with no one spared. His assistant from the era, now Brisbane coach Chris Fagan, remembers the difficulties they had to overcome. It wasn't always easy. We were a bit of an up and down team, but I think out of the ten years that he that he coached, we might have made six final series and and uh, grand final in two thousand. So uh, I always look back on that and think that he got the best out of that group because it wasn't necessarily or anywhere near close to being the best list in the competition. But they played with great spirit and great heart, and uh, you know got close on a couple of occasions. And yeah, you know, the club wasn't a, a big financial club either, was it? And you were, had to move around with facilities and so forth from, from my memory of, of during that period. 
It, it was a nightmare, really, uh, because we played a home game at the MCG and our training base was at, down there in St Kilda on the Junction Oval. That was always used for cricket all summer, so uh, you know, we'd be travelling all over the place to, to train um, in the summertime, which is, a, which is a bit of a drama in Melbourne, as you know, because traffic's not easy. And the Ables weren't necessarily next door to the Junction Oval that we trained at. So and you, and you always had to come back to the base for weights and things like that. So uh, it was an in- incredible uh, challenge. Um, and, you know, the Junction Oval itself and the facilities there weren't anything to write home about. We didn't have much, but we had great spirit and a, and a great coach who brought the team together. And in some ways, for me, like coaching Brisbane, we're a little bit like that still now. We trained at six or seven different venues over the summer and, I found myself thinking back to those times at Melbourne and trying to work out how you can turn that sort of uh, negative thing into a positive, which I was able to learn from Neil and be able to apply up here. 98 occurred and it was just, that was an amazing season. And I hope that's topped this year as my favourite season of all time. Running from a wooden spoon in 97 all the way to a prelim and a pretty competitive prelim. We were still in it against North at three-quarter time, uh, but just obviously weren't good enough to get over the line. And so that, again, I probably had a dip in my mid-teenage years and that really sealed me again uh, into to being a Melbourne fan. And then 2000, uh, the grand final season, as much as that was tempered by the, the knowledge that you were just playing to lose to Essendon in the grand final, uh, it was still a great run to the finals. We won maybe 10 of the last 11 games uh, and lost the other one by a point. Uh, in, the, in making the grand final. So that was an amazing run as well. So th- there, was, there was just a couple of great seasons amongst that and that's really 2018 aside um, we haven't had that since i'm not quite sure why that happened because the players love neil um and he certainly could rouse them there's no doubt about that and i think was it patrick smith who christened him the reverend well i think it was patrick but he he was like that that old-fashioned you know man of the cloth who was just able to sort of uh, get to the faithful and make them do anything and 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 they were good, but I can't understand why it was a, such a roller coaster ride from one year to the next. I tell, I tell one of the reasons, Hello, which was obvious, is when David Schwartz hurt him, did his knee the first time. My view at the time when I wrote this, I thought David Schwartz was the equal of Wayne Carey. And you know what my view about Wayne Carey is? And I think Schwartz was, was his impact on Melbourne matched that of Carey's on North Melbourne at the time. And then he did his knee. He would have been an all-time great on, on two good knees. Melbourne's two grand finals uh, under Northey and under Danaher almost make you think it's you're better off not getting there and you're better off being a, a gallant preliminary final uh, loser than going into the grand final and being smashed to that extent. The man that led the Demons into the 2000 grand final, David Neitz, says you couldn't ignore the weight of history. I think we're well aware of, of the history of the 50s and, and 60s and earlier uh, of Melbourne and the, and the success that they that they had. I guess uh, for me, leading into 2000, my memories of the Melbourne team were of the of the late 80s, early 90s, and um, where they were in finals pretty consistently. And then, I guess my journey started in '93, so we had a couple of reasonable years, a bit of uh, and some really troubling, hard times off the field where. You know, we had a merger game um, in there where the club was about to to lose its identity, um, as well as Hawthorne. Um, a whole lot of financial challenges and difficulties to keep the club alive. So, you know, I certainly felt where the club was at and its standing. I guess when you're leading into a grand final and the prospects of, you know, winning the first one since 64, 
yeah, it, it hits hits pretty hard. And um, in you know, who knows? Apart from a, a a dominant Essendon team that year, perhaps that's part of the reason why we weren't able to make a fist of it on the day. The whole grand final week is the is the experience that that I really enjoy and take away from it. We're in our old rooms in two thousand. They were tiny, small rooms, intimate little things, but you could smell the history in that place and in that space. We used to have supporters would come in before the game and watch the build-up to the game, obviously not in the grand final, but but in the earlier days through the 90s. Um, and there was a real intimacy and closeness between the fans and the players at that particular era. And you really felt um, the fan the fan presence at, at, that, at that point. But I guess on, on grand final day, to begin there, understanding the history of the of the club and the, and the place was was a special thing. You know, running down the race uh, with all the Melbourne fans and the and, and the colours, just just a, a fantastic feeling. You know, you just you're not really touching the ground. You you're walking on air, and I guess um, yeah, that moment of running out of the ground, cheering the boys up, breaking through the banner was a great moment. And uh, the rest of the day, we'll rather forget about. <laughs> Roller coaster ride under Neil Danaher would continue until his sacking midway through 2007. Unfortunately, things got worse rather than better. Linda, you worked at the club through an extraordinarily difficult period with very little joy on the field. There was the tanking controversy and then tragedy as well. I, mean, I worked there at Melbourne from 2005 to 2013. I've always been involved with the club. But things such as um, Jim Stein's death, obviously, was but it brought us all closer together in some ways as well because he was this, this wonderful force and he um, wasn't there anymore. It left a huge legacy for people to try and live up to. The lowest ebb that I can remember, I think, came in, in 2011. And I know when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, you asked me about whether the affiliation, the emotional attachment to a footy club ever impacted on my work. Well, if, that was, if it did, it was 2011. Late in the year, around 19, your team again, Hutto, Geelong. Geelong beat Melbourne by 186 points. And they were 20 goals to one at half time, And they won. This is almost sort of indelible in my, in my brain. 37 goals 11 to 7 goals 5. And I wrote a story calling Melbourne hopeless and pathetic. Now, I don't know. I'm not quite sure pathetic was in my words, but it was the heading of my story. You know what we always say? It was the sub-editor's fault. Well, yes. I, I had to wear that. And I know that... Um, uh, Don McClarty was the president at the time, and he was wounded by wounded by the team's performance, but certainly hurt by my uh, appraisal of what had happened, particularly when we were sort of quite friendly. Uh, and and Claire McClarty, Don's wife, I don't think she didn't speak to me for about three years. It was just this thing about you know when you're sort of so invested in a yeah. footy club that it's almost yours. But that period, the, the 186 point loss to, at Geelong was followed by. 76-point loss to Carlton the next week and then 48 to West Coast. And any Melbourne supporter would sort of say, where are we going? Not only have we had this terrible 40-year period, I mean, we're going, we, it's getting worse rather than better. But, we're, but footy clubs are resilient organisations, aren't they? That's 10 years ago and here we are this year. I think the, the, the other really bleak time I can remember was, I'm not saying this was his fault, but this was he was the coach, was the Mark Neal era, where... You know, going to the football 
knowing, not not fearing, but actually knowing you were going to get beaten by twelve goals, and, and that was the case. I think I think the average winning margin, uh, losing margin in Mark Neal's second year, which I think went for half. I think they, I think he was sacked during the bye, maybe halfway through the year. I think the average losing margin was thirteen goals. That was a to, to actually go every week, and I we went as a family every week and sat there and to walk into the ground knowing. You're going to get flogged. Is a it, it tests your metal and it tests your loyalty. And at that time, when I said, you know, it's the hope that kills you, we had no hope. But really, we had that big gap from from 2007 to 2018 where we we didn't play finals, uh, and that would test a lot of people. But I think for me, it almost solidified me even more into being a fanatic because it's just like you just had to be there. You almost felt at times. If I give up, then maybe everyone else will give up, and that'll be the end of the club. So, hopefully, this year, fingers crossed, will be the be the reward for all that. In my case, thirty years of waiting, but I know in a lot of other people's cases, uh, a lot longer than that. With the club at yet another low ebb, significant change occurred. With veteran administrator Peter Jackson installed as CEO, he in turn convinced Premiership coach Paul Ruse to take over the playing group, setting up a succession plan with current coach Simon Goodwin, who became the number one man in 2017. Four-time Premiership Hawk Jordan Lewis joined the Demons and found a club willing to tap into his experience. Mainly the playing group, they were searching for direction um, and you could sense that, you, you could sense that they wanted to ask questions and absorb knowledge of a, of a club that had been there before and, and had a successful period. And um, But there's also a, a reluctance, I suppose, to change. You know, the things that they'd done for the last five to ten years had been ingrained. So it was a, it's been a slow process to, to change to, to really good habits and to start to, I suppose, care for your teammate and understand... If you give a little bit more on field, you get much more back in return. For me, it was uh, attention to detail, and I've told this story before. So when we at, at Hawthorne would go out and train, uh, we would be in the same uniform. That'd be from a jumper to shorts to, to socks. Um, whereas when I went to Melbourne, um, the jumper would be the same, the shorts would be different, and the socks would be different. So, you know, I just sort of looked unprofessional. Um but that, that never changed in my time there. I, I tried as hard as I could to, to, uh, to make them realise that the little things all add up to being um, a bigger picture, but that was probably one example that I could use. Despite significant change and improvement at the club, there was still more heartbreak and letdown ahead. The 2018 Demons hit their straps in September with convincing wins in the elimination final over Geelong and then semi-final against Hawthorne at the MCG. With hopes high, the D's flew west to take on the Eagles in the preliminary final. But on a stinking hot Perth day, those hopes were quickly extinguished. It actually reminded me of 88 and 2000, where, you know, in 88, they probably should have got there in 87, but uh, the Irishman made a blue. The 88 and 2000 grand finals, I don't remember being confident about them. Going to Optus in 2018, I think we're a little bit more hopeful, but like all three games, the game was over after 10 minutes. You know, it was nightmarish. But, you know, you do what you do. You you know, I was staggered at the, the swiftness of the snuffing out of the season. We went to, um, I keep mentioning the Serena pub, but that must be true. Um, 
And Rob Pitt and Rob Pitt's family are fanatics about Melbourne. So that day, they set a room aside for the Melbourne supporters. And me and a mate of mine called Peter, Peter Watkins, went in there. And I reckon six minutes in, after Jordan Lewis fell over, Walker said, we're gone. I said, we can't be gone yet. That's six minutes into the game. And we were gone literally at quarter time over to a bloke's birthday party over the road because <laughs> it was just, it was just, you knew we were fated to sort of have the worst day of the year and we did. Uh, and to be honest, hello, I've blocked it out of my mind. I've never, I've never gone back and watched it. All my mates tell me how bad I was and they could sense how bad I was from the opening five minutes. Um, so it's one of those games I was lucky enough to have success prior to that. So it's one of those games where I just block completely out of my mind. I can take you through it if you like. <laughs> I'd rather not. And I'd rather them redeem themselves over at Optus Stadium in the, in the prelim final of 2021 to hopefully forget about those memories. Well, the ship, the ship didn't look all that good 12 months ago, I don't know, did it? Talk about Simon Goodwin's future and that that was a false dawn when we finished and played the preliminary final in Perth. But I do remember, and I'll share this with you. This is a nice scoop, hello. I was talking to Simon Goodwin in the uh, Sereno pub in February this year, and we are just talking about golf. He asked me if I play golf. Yes, I do. And I said, you'll be uh, playing golf pretty soon because he's got a place at Blair Gower. He yeah. said, no, I won't. He said, no, way too busy as a coach. I said, no, you'll get the sack soon enough. He's, and he looked he looked around and made sure no one was listening. And he said to me, he says, if we don't get any bad injuries, we'll win it this year. Now, he would have been the only person in the country that would have thought that. And uh, hopefully it's true. <laughs> hopefully it's true. I think it's been collective. And I think the thing that, that adds to that um, as well is – is some hurt and, and I think any player that goes through a career and um, and to be successful you need to have some sort of motivation and for me um, the motivation of, of missing finals losing finals um, and then the realisation that the, the group that they've got at the moment can be successful if they all buy in I think the addition of Adam Uze and Mark Williams has been um, extraordinary over the off season I, I think the, the football IQ and the, the coaching from, from Adam Uze is something that they needed, a fresh, you know, a fresh voice. And I think the, the commitment and the drive from Mark Williams and that, and that loud person on the training track, I think that that was, that was missing as well. So to put players under pressure, whether it be training in game, I think Chaco has been a, a huge part of that. Linda, you must love the excitement this year has created. Particularly through the past players, people like Rod Grinter, who just says, how good is this? This is a, I'm just looking at the, the last newsletter. I'm fully aware we still have some massive games in front of us, but I think yeah, it's a dream. It's, we're not far from waking up and realising this isn't a dream. It's really happening. So that's what he says in his address for the, the month. Yeah. It just it would mean a lot for so many people. It's part of the reason they keep going. It's not that we'd all give up and pack up our little bags and hammocks and head home if we did win the permission. So, okay, that was fun. Let's <laughs> go again. Because just the length of time, 57 years, has come so close a couple of times. Ah. And, and all this year, Melbourne supporters are saying, ah, oh, yeah, we'll finish on top and we'll win it and we won't be able to watch them uh, or we won't even get to have a grand final. We'll just be the team that finishes on top of the ladder. And this this thing that it can't, but we can't enjoy the moment about being as good as we've been without thinking about what the downside might be. If my reaction to the Max Gorn goal is anything to go by, uh, I think it would be pretty amazing still. Uh, I think I, I resembled the, the swimming coach from Tokyo 
when that goal went through, running through my lounge room and jumping up on my couch and celebrating that. So, look, I, I think the sadness would just not be being there with other Melbourne fans, you know, depending on what you can do if it happened by the end of September. You know, I'd, I'd like to at least be there with somebody who knew what it meant as much as would mean to me. It breaks my heart, but I would prefer to remove that stain from the club of not having won a flag in all that time and see it from afar and just know it's happened uh, than take the risk that it will never happen at all. Yeah, it's really disappointing. The fact, I think, that I went every week, you know, even in the Dennis Jones, Bob Skilt, Mark Neal eras every week, uh, it's just, it is incredibly frustrating. I'd be lying if I said that it wasn't frustrating not to be able to enjoy seeing it in the flesh. But, you know... It's, there's next year as well, and maybe the year after. I mean, this is a, a strong, talented young team with uh, a lot of A graders and a lot of great kids. So, if I can't be there this year, whether they win or lose, next year will be another opportunity to see it in the flesh. Because I think, <laughs> I think we supporters deserve it to be able to uh, see it in the flesh. Well, my position for the last few years on a grand final day has been working in the MCC library because that's another role I have. Yep. And also, I miss it terribly. But I understand it. You know, we're so lucky in this country to be able to do what we're doing and to be able to see it at all. The MCG itself must be just, you know, it, it does have a personality. The MCG itself it must just be sitting there going, not loved. But you're going to come back someday and the spirit of the MCG, it'll pick it up again and it'll take it on and it'll keep going. How will you watch the preliminary final, do you think? Oh, my goodness. With my head in my hands, usually. <laughs> um, peering between my fingers. At home with a cup of tea, probably with the radio on because I, I like to put it in my mind's eye. That's how I've been able to write all these years by listening to the radio a fair bit. But I'll probably watch it alongside members of my family and we'll, there will be people pacing quite a bit. <laughs> Very excited. And what do you think your emotional response will be if they win it? Desperately try and not cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, you know that it's the, the only sporting events I cry to is usually when I, I get knocked out of a big quaddy. Um, so I, re- I really hope I maintain my dignity. Do you think you yeah. will? Yeah, I'll suck up for sure. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> probably. I, yeah. Well, I'll be around people who will. I know that. I mean, I I don't mean to sound like dispassionate about that. I'm I'm genuinely. Um, pumped about where they are and what might lay ahead. Um, but I've seen a lot of footy, hello. So I'll be there. And I, look, I was when, when Maxi kicked the goal at Geelong, I was afraid. I, I just had a knee replacement. I was afraid <laughs> I was going to dislocate that. Um, and, and it was just weird sitting at home by myself watching that and being as excited as I was. So I can get pumped up about it. And I'll just, we'll, uh, I won't predict what might happen on grand final day, but I'll, I'll, I'll certainly enjoy it. I'm sure there'll be a, a torrent of tears. It will be, in my view, just like what it was for, for the Bulldogs in um, 16. Having to wait so long, having to seem to be the sort of the chopping block for, for, for so many other clubs and finally to achieve the ultimate. And I think we'll replicate that. I think they've been a fantastic team to watch. You know, I mean, you can have be a great team and, and have footy that you don't really like watching all that much, but they play great footy. They're a great team to watch. Um, but I think, we, I think the supporters, are, you know, I mean, all supporters, I mean, Carlton supporters are doing it horribly hard and so are Collingwood, boohoo. But I don't think anyone's done it harder than Melbourne supporters for 60 years. And the other thing that gets lost in this, Hutto, is everyone talks about the go Ds and go to the snow and 
no one knows anyone's number. That's all crap. I mean, the Melbourne supporters, the genuine Melbourne supporters, are as passionate as any. And they know them and they've lived it and they've bled uh, and they've jumped for joy. And they will do that this year. They will celebrate like any other club. Legendary football journalist and Melbourne supporter Mike Sheehan giving us just a taste of what it's like to be a Demons fan at the moment. A big thank you to Mike, Linda Carroll, John Rothfield, Jordan Lewis, Chris Fagan, David Neitz and Adam Woolcock for their contributions. If you're a Demons fan, make sure you check out Adam's book, The Last Hurrah, where he chats to many of the surviving stars to tell the story from 1964 and covers some of the journey since. Thanks too to AFL Digital and Channel 7 for the use of their great audio. Leading into Grand Final Week, we'll be back with two unmissable episodes featuring the MCG story of legendary player and coach Lee Matthews. So don't miss that. Of course, we're all sad that the big one won't be at the MCG this year. But we hope for a great finish to the season in Perth, so good luck to you if you have a side involved. Fingers crossed it won't be too long before the crowds will once again be roaring for this summer's BBL and Boxing Day cricket action. And we can meet you at the gym.